So we've been, um, we just started last week the, um, the Shut the Front Door series. The idea behind the series is that th- there are areas in our lives that we kind of leave the door open for the devil to walk through. And when the enemy's in the house, you lose. I mean, you know, kind of this defense 101, you don't let them in the house. And so a lot of times we're actually leaving the door open for them to come back and again and again and again. And so um, I want to talk about the areas in our lives that kind of we as American Christians uh, are really vulnerable to and we leave the door open. And if you're wondering why the devil's beating you all the time, it's because you're letting them in. So I want to talk about that. And there's so many of them, I had a hard time settling on one. I've actually had more struggle with this sermon, I think, than any sermon I've preached recently. Um, Part of it was just picking one. There were so many, you know, which one to start with. So I finally decided to start with the 10th commandment. Uh, so those of you who pay attention in your CCD classes, uh, former Catholics, the Bible class, the Sunday school class, or vacation Bible school for you, you Protestants, uh, just kind of curious, one, two, three, what is the 10th commandment? Anybody, anybody know? Anybody know the 10th commandment? They can tell me off the top. Come on. No one paid attention. See, some nun is very disappointed right now. Well, I need to know 10. Uh, number 10, number 10, anybody? Nobody. Okay, thou shalt not covet. Okay. So that's number 10. Gosh, I got, can't believe you. I'm telling you, you, you broke some nun's heart, some of you. Okay. Um, the 10th commandment, you, thou shalt not covet. And I started there because this is actually kind of a gateway to other, other temptations and other things that will enter our lives. So I wanted to start there. Uh, and this comes from Exodus, of course, the Ten Commandments are in Exodus. And this is the full one. You know, if you ever buy the little tiny bookmark things, but you just put them in one-liners, you just say, thou shalt not covet. It always says, thou shalt not, even though we don't really speak like Shakespeare. It always does that. That's old King James. Um, but if you look at the whole one, it goes on. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It's very, very specific in everything. You know, just kind of starts listing anything you could think of. You're not allowed to covet it. What does that mean? And um, one thing I want to say, though, is that notice that God doesn't say, do not covet bad things. He says, do not covet. Sometimes we think it's okay to covet good things. He says, do not covet. A covetous spirit opens up the door for many, many other spirits to enter because it's subtle. It gets into us a lot of ways. So before I get into what coveting really means, because in America, to be honest, just to be really honest, when someone uses the word covet, they're usually talking about one of two things. Something very expensive you can't afford, or sex with someone you shouldn't have it with. You know, those are the kind of the two areas that you hear the words coveting used, you know, in TV and things. There's, it's a much wider uh, sin than that. It's a much, much, much more treacherous uh, little temptation than that. So before I get into the Old Testament, I'm going to show a couple examples of it. I want to do a quick jump over to the New Testament. I want to, I want to show you uh, Jesus talking about commandments in general. Now, this happens quite a bit in the New Testament. The, the Pharisees come up to test him, and they're actually going to trick him. And I always wondered, you know, what does that mean? How, how do they try to trick? How do you trick somebody with a theolo- theology question? You know, I can see if Jesus was a professor, and it's a math question. Ha, I didn't even know Pythagorean's theorem. No one can follow this guy. But, you know, it's a theology question, right? Aren't they a little bit open to interpretation? I always wondered, how exactly is it that these Pharisees are trying to trick or trap Jesus with theology questions? And that's because I was thinking from a standpoint of church, you need to think from a standpoint of politics. See, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a soundbite that they can use against him to divide his followers. They don't care what Jesus says. What's concerning everybody is everybody's listening to him. 
He has followers. I mean, Jesus shows up and 5,000 people, flash mob shows up. This is scaring the leaders, right? And so they want to break up the followers. If they can get him down to just 12 people, you know, following him around, he, he, he's marginalized. So what they're trying to do always is they're trying to find a divisive topic that they can start splitting off his followers. And so that's what happens here. So what's happened, you know, coming into this Matthew 22 is first the Sadducees take a shot at him and they swing and miss. And so then the Pharisees take their shot. And you have to know that these guys are spending weeks on these questions. They're thinking in advance what they're going to ask him. They actually probably have teams. They're working on the question to try to get Jesus. And it's really funny because Jesus like takes half a second of thought and blows them away. This goes on throughout the entire New Testament. So when one of the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, an expert in Mosaic law, asked him a question to test him. Now watch this question because it seems so innocent. Teacher, tell me, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Pick one. There's ten commandments. Which one's the best? Which one's number one? And this seems so innocent, but see, that's why it's a trap, right? Because there's a second question behind this question as soon as he answers it. Because there's actually right now in Jerusalem a big debate over how many of the laws they should be really following anymore. When Mosaic law was first given to them, the Ten Commandments was given to them when they were in the wilderness, and the rest of the laws were given to them as they're camped outside the Promised Land, and they moved into the Promised Land. And all the laws about you know, getting along with your neighbors were really laws about getting along with Jews. And it was in their country. And the only people they rubbed elbows with all day long were other Jews. And so they're all the chosen people. And so all those laws about how to get, get along with other people kind of make sense. If you want to divide the Ten Commandments into two segments, the first four are segments about God. You, uh, the, only God, no idols, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath day. The first four are all about God. And then it shifts. It starts with mom and dad. But see, mom and dad are part of society, the, the cornerstone of society in, in Jerusalem and even in our society is, is the family. So it starts there. And then from there goes on all the other ones. You, know, you shall not uh, murder. You should not steal. You will not commit you know, false uh, testimony. And you will not commit adultery and you will not covet. All those are dealing with the people around you. They're society laws, right? And so there's a big group of people right now who don't think those apply anymore because they're not surrounded by Jews anymore. They're surrounded by Romans and Hittites and Greeks and, you know, they were conquered. And so they're basically saying really all we need to worry about is the first first laws and the other ones really you can lie to a Hittite that's okay you know there's no problem about that you can you can cheat a, a Roman that's nothing wrong with that and so they're trying to say really the the core here is, is just we keep keep true to Jehovah and everything's okay so God so either way Jesus chooses when he picks one of the ten he's going to fall in one of those two camps and as soon as he does the, the trap springs and they're going to use that to drive half of his people away because there's, it's, there's, no, there's no clear consensus on this. Except Jesus, of course, isn't playing their silly little game. And he has written this law and knows it very, very well. And so he says, well, the, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And he went to Deuteronomy. He just skipped right over all ten commandments. And he went right to Deuteronomy. He says, this is the main, the main thing. And the funny thing is at that point, uh, this poor Pharisee who had his second question has nothing left to say because Jesus has disarmed him by going someplace that he didn't expect. And, you know, at this point, the disciples are feeling pretty good about themselves, and it's kind of like... It's cool. It's cool. Yeah, cool. My boy's wicked smart. Yeah, our guy's wicked smart. Yeah, you go on. You take your little questions and move on. That's our guy's really wicked smart. Except Jesus does something very, very interesting. Uh, he doesn't really answer it. 
because he goes on after he gets that one. He said, that's a great, most foremost command, and the second one's like it. So he says, give me one, and Jesus gives him two. He's cheating a little bit, but he can do it because this guy's still so dazed by the fact he jumped out of Exodus and went to, to Deuteronomy. And so he says, the second one is really uh, just like it. And he comes back, he says, because the second one is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he tells him this. He says, these two commandments, on these two commandments depend the entire law. If you get these two, you understand all of them. If you don't get these two, you won't understand any of them. Now, that's kind of an important thing Jesus just said there. I don't know if you caught that because the law was still given to us to protect us, right? So the law is given to us to keep us safe and the law is given to us in order to keep us on the right path and then grace makes it possible for us to achieve. But the law is still here for us and Jesus is basically saying to us still, look, if you want to understand everything about how we, my father and I laid things out to you, these two things you have to understand. If you get these, you get them all. If you don't get these, you won't understand anything. And why that's important is, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time following laws that make no sense to me. Anybody else like me? If I'm driving along the road and it goes down to 15 miles an hour for no reason at all, I don't know why I should slow down. I'm on the same road. All of a sudden, this thing went from 55 to 15. Why? Makes no sense to me. Put a school zone, children crossing there. Oh, well, I know I need to slow down here because children are crossing, right? That makes sense to me. I have a very hard time following these laws that don't seem to make sense. Maybe it's just me, but I have a hard time with that. And so what Jesus is saying is here's how you'll make sense of the law. This is how you make sense of everything we're doing. You need to understand these two things. So that was really, really cool. The greatest commandment, he says, is found in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, I read you the whole thing. Uh, this is Moses writing. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And some translations add, with all your mind. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down. You will walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up, he's saying, this should always be on your mind. I must love the Lord with everything in me. Everything. I must be totally committed and sold out to the Lord. He said, if you keep repeating this to your children, to yourself, when you, when you rise up, remind yourself. When you go to bed, remind yourself. When you're walking along the way, remind yourself. This is what you need to do, okay? But then the weirdest part to me is when he comes back and says, and the second one is like it. Because this kind of makes no sense to me at all. Because the next one that he says, he says that... Uh, uh, where he says the second one is that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me get back to that line. Love your neighbor as yourself. First one, love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, this is like this. I'm looking, I'm saying, no, they're not. I don't know about you, but I'm looking, those, those aren't the same. One's talking about God, one's talking about neighbors. By the way, what Jesus does by, with that is he endorses the entire Ten Commandments. But beyond that, I'm like, those aren't really the same. What is he saying? That we, should, we need to love everybody and that helps us love God? But that's not true, right? Because we know people who love people and hate God. We know people who love people and don't even believe in God. The whole Buddhist religion doesn't even believe in a God, but it's all about loving and treating everybody fairly. So that itself doesn't do it. That must not be what Jesus is saying here. And in fact, what he is saying, what he's using when he says that, is, is he's using that word like that comes, you know, for us it's a word. It's actually a phrase in Greek. It's the same phrase he uses whenever he talks about a parable. Hey, you want to know what kingdom of heaven's like? The kingdom of heaven's like, and he breaks it down. You know, so it goes to plant seeds or whatever the parable is. 
So he's actually saying, when he uses that, that this thing I'm about to give you has truths that exist in this. They're the same DNA, right? There's truths in here. And if you get this, you'll get this truth. If you don't get this, you won't get that truth. In other words, let me put this another way, because I can tell some of you, man, you got semantic on me. That's weird on Sunday morning. Let me tell you this way. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you can't love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. Those two things seem very, very weird to me, but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you can't do this without that. This one is so critical, and that's why this one is so important. Now, what he's actually doing is he's quoting Leviticus, and I want to show this to you because this scripture gets misquoted all the time. He says in Leviticus, this is the law, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Jesus reaffirms this later, of course. He says if you hate him in your heart, same thing as you killing him. He brings that back to the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. He says, you may surely rebuke your neighbor if he sins. In other words, if you see your neighbor doing something wrong, you're allowed to tell him that's sinful. That's wrong. It's not, that has nothing to do with love. A lot of times we think love means letting people get away with things, right? If you really love me, you'll let me do this. But that's wrong. Yeah, I shouldn't let you do it. That's not love. Right? He says, you can do that, but just don't commit sin because of it. Now, this is interesting because there's actually two ways that you can commit sin because you're watching somebody else. One is that you participate. You know, your neighbor comes over, boom, boom, boom. Police are coming here. Can you hold my drugs? You know, you know don't do that. You know, don't commit sin because of your neighbor. You know, that's, that's not loving him. But there's another way you can commit sin because of your neighbor. You can let his success eat at you. And you can be jealous of his success. Sometimes it's hard to watch somebody by us succeed while we don't. That's sinning as well. That's having hate in your heart towards that person. And that's what he's saying. He said, look, also, watch, do not take vengeance nor bear your grudge against the children. In other words, some people hate the parents so bad they hate the child. He says, you shouldn't do that either. And then finally he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Okay? What Jesus does, he jumps down to the end part because he wants them to know we're talking about neighbors, not Jews. We're talking about everybody. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if what the commandment was, was love the other Christians at Spirit Chapel the way you love yourself. And anybody else is fair game. But that's not the commandment. The commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't get to choose your neighbor. Well, some of you know that. Some of you have good neighbors. Some of you don't have such good neighbors. And you don't get to choose them. The house gets sold, somebody else moves in, and there you are. So come back to again, well, how are these two alike? And then you have to take a look at what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me tell you some really bad teaching I've heard on this. And if you've ever heard this, you need to reject it entirely and totally. And this is actually, uh, I heard this back when I was much younger. It was a very famous televangelist who said this. I'm going to tell you his name. You'll know who he was. He's passed away now. One of the very first televangelists, one of the very first megachurch pastors, a guy named Robert Schuller. Uh, had an Hour of Power uh, television show and had the Crystal Cathedral in California. He was a who's who pastor, always listed on top 10. Movie stars came to his church out there in California. Now, he started out preaching the gospel, but as he realized he needed to grow his kingdom and his empire, he started mixing other things into it to make it more accessible to unbelievers. Somewhere along the way, and this is, I mean, you can look this stuff up. I'm not making this up. Uh, I didn't pull out his quotes, but Somewhere along the way, he decided the biggest problem in the world was that people lack self-esteem. I don't know where he came up with that idea because the biggest problem, I think, is people are too prideful. But he seemed to think the biggest problem in the world where people lacked self-esteem, and his mission in life was to help people grow their self-esteem. 
Uh, he was actually said on many occasions that the cross was the greatest ego trip in the world. Jesus was all about his own self-esteem. It's, it's crazy, honestly. Um, but when he got to this verse, he said, well, see, if Jesus said that you need to love your neighbor as yourself, that means you need to learn to love yourself. And then he took off from that and preached a whole sermon about why you need to love yourself. Um, that's ridiculous on every level. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying you need to learn to love your neighbor as yourself because you already love yourself. That's, that's really not an issue. It's like when, when the Bible says that the, the, the um, words of a friend are sweeter than honey. They know you know that honey's sweet, so they don't have to explain that to you, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you know, you already love yourself. You need to love your neighbor like that. Now, some people I've met say, well, I really don't love myself. In fact, I kind of hate myself. I've met some people who kind of have a self-loathing about themselves. And uh, I would say, no, you don't. What you hate is your life. And you don't like the way you're living in your life, maybe because of the way people were acting about you or maybe because of mistakes you've made in your life, and that makes you loathe that. But you still are angry about it because you love yourself and you want to see that story unfold correctly. See, here's the thing. Everyone's the hero of their own story. You have to know that. You're the hero of your story. If there was a narrator narrating your story, they'd be narrating your thoughts, right? Because you're the center of your story. And what Jesus is saying, and I'm going to kind of turn this a little bit because it's a little bit like going to the heart of the matter. What he's really saying is, if you love your neighbor as yourself, it's okay that they're a hero too. And that gets harder, right? He's saying, it's all right. In fact, here's how you'll know. If, uh, if, if your neighbor succeeds, you should be happy about it. And if you can't be happy about it, then you're opening the door to the covetous spirit. And when I say neighbor, you understand that crosses a lot of boundaries. It covers the family members it crosses people at work, idiots at work that don't deserve it. <laughs> Everybody you come in contact with, you know, that's what Jesus is saying. You should be okay with their success because you'd be okay with your success, right? And we do this with some people in our lives. Parents, you do it with your kids, right? Your kids' achievements, like your achievement. You love that. It's not personally you, but you see them achieving and you're so proud of them, right? You see that. You love that. Okay, you don't have kids, let's say. How about this? Do you ever root for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Do you know why? Because they're part of Pittsburgh, right? And that's part of your story. And so when they win, it's like you won. We even use those terms. We won last night. Well, we lost last night with the Penguins. You know, we, we win, we lose. We did. No, we didn't. I wasn't on the ice, you know. Thank God. I've been, been 12. But, you know, it's like, it, it, but we use those terms. Why? Because they're part of our story. And do we care if our heroes succeed? No, we love it. Even when they succeed outside the arena. How many of you voted for Heinz Ward to win the mirror ball and Dancing with the Stars? We just love to see them succeed because they're part of our lives and it's okay that they're heroes who succeed in our lives. It gets tricky when it's someone we don't like who's succeeding though, isn't it? We don't really want to see them succeed because they don't deserve it. You know, we have, for some reason, they don't deserve to succeed and it bothers us when they succeed. Somebody at work got a promotion that they shouldn't have gotten. Why did that happen? God, that doesn't seem right. That's not, that's not fair. And here's why covetousness is so insidious, because it sneaks in under the guise sometimes of righteousness. Well, I don't want to see them succeed because they cheat and they lie and they shouldn't succeed. What we're really saying is I should succeed, and they did, and I didn't, and that makes me angry. See, this is the beginning of the covetous spirit. Because we're looking at them, we're saying, ah, that's not right. Well, who says it's not right? Is it not okay that they succeed? No, it's not okay. They should fail because I should get that or my friend should get that. There's somebody else who should get that, not them. I can't believe my neighbor just got a new car. I haven't had a new car. How do they get a new car? 
Why do they? Why them? You know? And so we're looking at that, and here's what's happening, and here's why this is so dangerous, and this is why this affects the first commandment. Because what you're saying to God is, I'm really not satisfied with what you're doing in my life. Because it's impossible to be covetous if your eyes are on God. In fact, the Bible warns us about that. The Bible says in Proverbs this, let your eyes look straight ahead. Let your eyelids look right before you. It's like, peel your eyelids straight ahead. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. He said, you walk straight ahead. You, know, you, you all know I got this German shepherd now, right? And he's a, he's a puppy, and, and puppies just don't always obey. I don't know if you knew that, but they don't. German shepherds more than most. And uh, sometimes I'm trying to get him to walk straight ahead with me. And sometimes he's crisscrossing. I'm like, would you stop it? You know, you're messing up our walk with your little crisscross. If you would just walk straight ahead, we'd get where you want to go faster. Things would be better. You just need to walk straight ahead. I think God's doing that with me sometimes. Would you stop crisscrossing? We're trying to walk straight ahead here. But you keep wandering to the left and to the right. Do you know how much longer this is making the walk? You know, my dog goes through briars, and, and he goes through burrs, and, and I have to click him out. What are you doing to yourself over there? You would stay on the path. We'd be fine. We'd get where you want to go faster, and we'd be fine. Now we've got to clean up the briars. Now we've got to clean up everything else. You're gathering all kinds of stuff in your fur. Why are we doing this? We're crisscrossing back and forth. God says, no, you stay on the path. You look at the shepherd. You follow the shepherd. You don't look left, and you don't look right. You cannot be focused on one thing and be led by another. I don't know if you've noticed that one, but if you've, uh, again, with August, he's on a leash and I'm walking with him, and if he's looking over that way and I'm trying to lead him this way, it doesn't work real well. He ends up getting tugged a lot because he doesn't see where I'm heading. If God's trying to lead you and you're looking at your neighbor's stuff, you're not going to be following him correctly. This is what God's trying to say. And we have to understand that God will not lead an undecided man. You know, as C.S. Lewis once put it so eloquently, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say, okay, God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, have it your way. That's kind of where it gets. There gets to be a point where God says, okay, you don't want to walk with me? Fine. Don't walk with me. And now you're on the path by yourself. And so if we want to have God lead us, we need to be committed to him. And anytime we're starting to look at other things, when we're feeling the pull from other things, we're feeling the pull away from what God's given us, we have to know that we are saying to God, I am not happy with what you've done with my life. And I am not satisfied with what you've done in life. And I really wish you would do something about it because what's happening in my life isn't fair. And this is always true. If ever you feel a pull of anything in your life, what that means is you're telling God, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with what you've done. I'm not happy with what you're doing. I'm not happy with where we are. You're messing up. Now tell me how much you love the God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. I said, well, that's a little bit unfair. I can love God and still want something else. Not according to what the Bible says. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. So if you get it for a meal and you're full, and somebody goes, hey, would you like some honey? <laughs> no. Could not possibly eat a bite. Couldn't. I couldn't. Have you ever been so full that someone offered you something great and you had to turn them down? I have. It's like, man, that looks great. It's like every time I got to eat at Tilly's, they come by. You want some dessert? No. There's no way I could eat dessert. I'll explode. 
right? If you're full, they can't tempt you with anything. Have you noticed that? When you're full, there's nothing. I don't care what your greatest weakness is. If you're so full that you've got nothing left in you and someone brings your greatest weakness, I, hey, would you like whatever that is? Tiramisu for my wife. She loves that stuff, uh, you know, whatever. Chocolate mousse. I don't know what your favorite dessert is. If you're full and they tempt you with it, you'll say no, no. But boy, if you're fasting or you're hungry or you're on a diet and that comes out, that's a different story, isn't it? Now all of a sudden, yeah, I'll have some of that. It's really hard to resist something when you're hungry. And that's what it says. To a hungry soul, watch this. Every bitter thing is sweet. There are people who are dissatisfied with what God gives them, and they're trying to fill their lives with bitterness. That doesn't make bitterness go away. They're grabbing onto every bitter thing. And their lives are getting worse and worse and worse. They don't realize what's happened is they've turned away from the God who's trying to teach them and bring them forward. Maybe it's manna today, and maybe you're tired of manna, but he's trying to use manna to teach you to trust him. I don't want that, God. I want pork. You know, he says, I'm trying to teach you manna. I'm trying to show you that I'll take care of you. I don't want that. I want this. And God says, then you can't follow me because I'm trying to take you through this season in time where I'm going to use this to teach you. And you say, I don't want that. I want this. You're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. When we're dissatisfied our lives, we will grab onto any bitter thing. And that's because all things are bitter. Have you ever noticed if somebody has something you really want and you go out and buy it, it doesn't make you feel better? Have you ever felt that? You know, why do you think you can't fill up your life with a charge card? Because all these things are just bitter things. Because the truth of the matter is you wanted that because you're dissatisfied with where God's leading you. And you reached out to grab it. And it doesn't help. It makes things worse worse because now you're really not following the Lord anymore. Okay, so let me show you a couple examples here in the Bible where we can see this. One of those is kind of a famous story. Um, David, you know, my favorite character in the Bible, but David, if he's known for one thing, it's David versus Goliath. But if he's known for two things, it's David versus Goliath and David and Bathsheba. So it's like the heights of both sides. The David versus, the David versus, or the David and Bathsheba story is actually a tough one because we see David do some very unchristian or ungood Jewish things. Uh, in fact, the, the, the heart and soul of the Lord, you know, the apple of God's eye, does some, does some stuff here that's just almost unbearable. Okay, so let's watch it. Samuel starts off by saying, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. It's like, this is what kings do. They go out to battle. They kind of fight for their different territories. You try to gain a little more territory. All kings are out there except David. David sent Joab and his servants with him to besiege Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is horrible on many levels. First of all, David is the king. All other kings are out there. You know, the Hittites had their king. Ammonites had their king. You know, Philistines had their king. But Jews were sent out without their king. And this was especially bad here because in David's entire life, he never loses a battle. Can you imagine not having that guy on your team? <laughs> that guy sitting on the bench? This is the guy you need more than anybody else. You need David with you. He's never lost a battle because when he goes to battle, the Lord is with him. And the Lord always gave him victory. I'm going to stay home. We don't know why. I think David hit this moment in his life where things kind of, he kind of had this, this law in his walk with the Lord. I think anybody who's followed the Lord for any length of time, you've had those you know, times in your life where, I don't know, I just don't feel like I'm connected to him. Like, I don't know why. And I really think that what happened in, in, in the case of David was he had spent so long running for his life, 
fighting, you know, battles. You know, Saul was trying to kill him. He'd fight Saul. He'd fight the Philistines. Fighting all. Then he finally gets the kingdom. He had a fight to unify it. Then he had a fight to, set, to, 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 to make sure their boundaries were safe. He'd been fighting his whole life. Winning, you know, God's been with him, teaching him and leading him and winning. It's been exhilarating, but he's, he's like, you know what, God, I'm going to take a break from this for a little tiny bit. I'm just going to kind of just, you know, I'm going to take a break, relax a little bit. I've been doing a lot of fighting. I'm just going to relax. And when you're th- tempted to do that, I'm going to take a little break, you know, from God for a minute. I've been working real hard. It's been good, but I'm going to take a little break. We have to understand that when we stop walking, temptation catches up. And this is a problem. I think this is the problem. With the, when, when you have these moments in your life where you have these lulls, I still feel close to God. What probably happens is you've sat down. You're lying down next to the path, and God's like, come on, let's go, come on. Like, no, I'm going to take a break. And if you're not following God, temptation will quickly catch up with you. And that's what happens with David, right? So he's sitting there, and he's back in, in Jerusalem where he shouldn't have been, and it happened one evening, <laughs> it just happens, that David arose from his bed, walked to the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And so uh, this is, of course, Bathsheba. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, I want to point out that usually this whole thing's kind of shown as this, like, lustful eye of David. I actually think that this moment, there wasn't much lust involved because he saw her from such a distance. He kind of thought she was beautiful, but I don't think he could have really known that. The Bible tells us she was beautiful, and she certainly was. But I don't think David could have known that because it isn't like you're, you're looking at your house in your neighbor's yard. You understand? Because he's in the king's house. He's in the palace. It'd be like looking from here across into like, I don't know, where the landscaper is across the street far away. Now you can hide and you can see down there, but that's pretty far. So he can see her, and I want, you to, I want you to see what happens. He sent and inquired about the woman. He didn't just go out and say, hey, send that woman to me so I can talk to her. He inquired about her first. Now watch this. And someone said, well, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, that's not Jewish, which means Uriah would have come into Jews by marriage, right? So he's not really even Jewish. And I think this is the problem. David saw this woman. Now he's sure she's beautiful, even though he couldn't really see. Now he's convinced she's beautiful because she belongs to someone else. And that guy doesn't even deserve her. He's a Hittite. He doesn't deserve a beautiful Jewish woman for his wife. David's the king. If there's anybody who deserves a beautiful Jewish woman, it'd be king especially King David, the greatest king of all time in Israel. See what's happening to him? This actually starts as coveting, I believe. It's because she belongs to the Hittites. He says, send her to me. That's just wrong. Now, by the way, probably when Bathsheba was younger, before she met Uriah, uh, David could have had her as his wife. He had several wives. Didn't want her then. Now he does, because now she belongs to someone else. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Mm, okay. So um, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And that's what she was doing on the, on the roof. And then she returned back to her house. So he goes and sends for her. Now he wants her. Now she belongs to someone else. If there's anybody in the world who should know better than this, it's David. Right? David knows all that. He's written psalms about this. He's, he's written all kinds of things about this. But what's happened is temptation has come upon him because he rested. He stopped the walk with the Lord. I'm going to take a break, Lord. I'm going to go ahead and do that. But here's the problem. What starts with coveting will turn to lust, adultery, bearing false witness, and murder. When the door gets open to coveting, you've started 
a whole procession of spirits going to be entering into your life. When you allow yourself to covet, and that can be not a person, it can, not, it can just be a, a anything. I'm sure that person's better than I am because I've seen their Instagram posts and look at their lunches. You know, I see a lunch from them every day. They're eating much better than I am. I wish I had their life, right? Facebook is wonderful for creating covetous nature, <laughs> nature in, in human beings. I mean, this is like, this was four, it seems. You know, we take pictures of our cars. We take pictures of our houses. We take pictures of cool things going on in our lives. And people are watching the going, none of this stuff's happened in my life. Man, my life sucks. I need that. I should be doing this stuff. I deserve this stuff. Right? That's just, we're raising a generation, by the way, pray for your kids, because we're raising a generation to teach them to covet. That's what Facebook does. It teaches, and Instagram, it teaches you to covet. I saw this thing on, um, on the, the news, something like uh, Kim Kardashian Instagram post is worth, I forget, it's like $1 million or something, something ridiculous. Because it is so influential, what, when she, like, she buys a pair of shoes, so many young girls will buy that pair of shoes. They pay these people to post pictures. Did you, did you know that? You can be a social media influencer. That's a job now. Where you, you get enough followers and, and you post pictures of what you're doing, people rush out and buy them. It's, it's like worse or better, I guess, depending on where you look at it, uh, than any kind of advertising. Because the people they're following, they're watching, they've chosen to follow this person, is buying those shoes. I have to have those shoes. They buy this meal. I have to go to that place and eat. You know, they pay these stars to show up at parties and, and so other people will show up. It's influencing people. We are teaching our kids the most important thing is their social network and whatever their social network's doing, they have to do. That's what we're teaching them. You have to be careful because we are raising a generation of coveting people. That's what we're doing. That's what social networking is really all about. And more than anything else, how do you think Facebook makes money? <laughs> they sell your information to people who want to use it to advertise things because they know how to get to you now, because they know what your network is. We, we are really, really, really in dangerous ground right now because we are all da in danger of being overrun by violating the 10th commandment. Okay, so real quick, because I don't have much, very much time, uh, I'll just kind of walk through this story. But what happens is David... Uh, gets Bathsheba pregnant, so he has to cover it. So he brings Uriah home from battle and figures, well, she's a beautiful woman. The first thing he's going to do after he gets cleaned up is go home to his wife. But Uriah treats his brother, his, his, his uh, fellow soldiers like his brothers, and he treats them like he would treat himself. He says, well, if, if they don't get to come home, I'm not going home. I'm going to stay in the barracks. I'm a soldier at war. I'll stay in the barracks. David can't believe it, so he calls them to the palace the next night says, you didn't get home to your wife? says, no, I can't do that, my Lord, because my brothers are still fighting, and so is, so is your captain. And by the way, so should David, but he doesn't say that. And so David gets him drunk. He has him you know, for dinner, gets him drunk, and sends him home. But on the way home, he goes back to the barracks again. Uriah just won't do this because he will not do something that his brothers can't do. He's like completely living by what Jesus said. He's treating everybody around him as though he treat himself. He says, I wouldn't like that. I'm not going to do that. And so David sends him back with a note to the captain. And the, captain, and he, the note says this, attack the most hotly contested part of the wall and then fall back and leave Uriah there alone. It, it's basically a, a murder sentence. But here's the thing, the captain doesn't know why. He's assuming since the king just gave him an order to effectively execute one of his soldiers, he must deserve it. The king has passed judgment on him. He must deserve it. He's, so he's bearing false witness. He's committed adultery. He's lying. And he is now going to commit murder. And that's what happens. But watch now. David thinks he gets away with it because it works. The guy gets killed. 
And so he waits for a mourning period. Then he takes Bathsheba into the palace where no one really knows. They can't count how many months before she gives birth to a child. And then he marries her. Okay, so everything's cool. He's pulled it all off because he's the king and he has power, except the real king saw everything. And he sends the prophet to him. The prophet says, hey, David, I, I got to tell you about this. Um, there were two men in one city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. And he really kind of starts setting this thing up here. He says it ate its own food and drank from his own cup. It was like he's like just loves this little lamb, right? And it was like a daughter to him. He's like, treat this, this little lamb like a, like a kid, like some of us do our dogs, right? And a traveler came to the rich man. And he, because of that, he's supposed to, to kill a fatted calf or a lamb for him and, and make a feast. He doesn't want to kill one of his own. So instead, he goes and takes that lamb and kills it and, and feeds it to his traveling guest for the man who had come to him. And so when David hears that, he's incensed. He says, well, that man needs to be put to death. And that's why Nathan points the finger and says, you're that man. God saw everything. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you more. But look, you have despised the commandment of the Lord and you did evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. I saw everything. And it started because you took something that didn't belong to you. God's not angry with him for the lust. He's angry with him for the coveting. You came and you took something that did not belong to you because you could. And that's not my king. So David, this is probably the greatest sin in his life. There are some other things he does that are kind of up to this. But this is probably the greatest sin of his life. And it starts because he thought, well, he doesn't deserve that. I'm the king. I deserve that. How many times do we look at people around us and say, well, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. Or even if they say, well, it's okay if they have that, but I want it too, right? We're looking at other people's lives, but comparing our lives, they're saying it's not comparing very well. I need that. And what we're telling God is, I really, really don't like what you're doing with me. What you're doing with me is insufficient, God. Step up your game a little bit. Coveting is rejection what God has given us and saying it is not enough. All right, real quick, because I don't have much time and I... I know I'm at the, at the end of the baby's limits, so I'll try to spin this up. Uh, anyway, we need to get to the point in Psalms where we can say, look, one day in your court's better than a thousand anywhere else. If we can ever get to the point where we just really say, look, I really, really, really love being with you, Lord, and I wouldn't do anything at all to, to, to challenge that, then we're finally getting to the point where we can shut that door on coveting. But as long as we leave it open even a little tiny bit, it's a problem because God can't trust you if your heart's divided. He just cannot trust you. You know this verse, we talked about this verse a lot. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. We want that first part, but we don't want that second part, right? We want God to strongly support everything we do. But is our heart divided? Are we watching to the left and to the right? Are we comparing our lives with somebody else that we know? And we're coming up short and we're going back to God and saying, I don't think this is enough. I really don't think this is enough. I want that. Let me real quick show you an example of somebody who was facing the same temptation and he turned it down. This is Joseph. So Joseph is a slave who gets promoted to the head of a household. He's running everything. He's a good looking guy. And the wife of the household notices him. 
And the man of the household's out a lot. And so she comes to him and she says, lie with me. Let's, let's, go, let's go have illicit, illegal sex together. The offer really isn't just for the sex, though. It's the one thing in the, lo- in the house Joseph's not allowed to have. I want you to catch that. This is the one thing he's not allowed to have. That's what's now being offered to him. It's so much more than just a night of pleasure. It is taking from his master the one thing his master wouldn't give him. See, that's where we really kind of run into these situations because that's a very powerful thing. If you think about that, that's exactly what Eve fell for. It's the one thing she wasn't allowed to have is what she fell for. And what, what, does, uh, what does Joseph say, who's spent 12 years by this point being readied by God for this moment? Uh, actually, not yet, uh, three years at this point. He refused. He said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? I want to show you, I've mentioned this before. He doesn't say, what if we get caught? What if your husband finds out? What if you get pregnant? What if there's an STD? He doesn't say any of these things that she had ready answers for. He says the one thing she couldn't answer, how can I do this and sin against my God? Because he knows it's not normal for a slave to be risen to this level of power. He said, God has done so much for me. I've been taken from this, this place where I was a nobody, and I've been put in charge of everything. The only thing being withheld is you, and that's from God, not your husband. And I'm okay with that because I like where God has me. I'm not going to do that because that is sin against my God. It's not just a moment of pleasure. It's sinning against my God. It's telling God what he's done for me is not enough, and I'm not going to do that. See, that's how we need to be. We need to say, man, you know what? I don't need that, God, because what you've done for me is enough. You've given me so much, and I'm going to trust you that if you think I need something, you'll give it to me. And if you don't think I need it, don't give it to me because I don't want it. If there's anything that's going to take me away from you in any way, I don't want it. I don't want to fill my life up with anything except what you give me. I would rather eat manna and live with the Lord than eat quail and live with Egyptians. Are we ready to say, I'm going to shut the door to coveting? Because if we don't, we can't ever get to this verse where God is strongly supporting us because our heart is not completely his. A heart devoted to God does not look to the left or to the right. It looks straight ahead and says, lead me on. Oh, Lord, would you all please pray with me?